offering my most loving pranams at Bhagwan's lotus feet. Dear listeners, I welcome you to this week's episode of the Gita series, The Triune Pilgrimage. This is Prem, your friend from Team Radio Sai, from our studios at Prashantanilayam. As you all know, this is a series where we go through the Bhagavad Gita verse by verse, trying to imbibe the beautiful and profound message given there by Lord Krishna and re-emphasized and explained it in the context of the modern times by our dear Bhagwan. The references, of course, are Swami's Gita Vahini, Swami's many discourses on the Bhagavad Gita, especially a series in the year 1984 where Swami spoke continuously for many days on the Bhagavad Gita. I'll keep making reference to that off and on. Especially today, I'm going to make a few references to a couple of discourses from there. And many, many other occasions where Swami has explained and given us beautiful contextual explanations for how to understand the message of the Gita. I think that is what makes this journey of the Gita series so enriching our ability or our opportunity, I should say, to go back and listen to and dwell upon some of these messages. So I offer on behalf of all of us most humble pranams at Bhagwan's lotus feet for this opportunity. Last week, we had uh, the second episode on the third chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. So as always, let's begin with a short summary of what we covered the last time. We covered four verses of chapter 3, verses 4, 5, 6 and 7. Probably just to go back a little further than that, the chapter itself begins with Arjuna asking a very important question, whether knowledge and the pursuit of knowledge, if it is so important, why are you Krishna asking me to act? Why are you asking me to participate in this war? Can't I just pursue knowledge? And the hidden agenda there is, can I not become a sannyasi? Can I not give up all of this? Can I not wear the ochre robes of a mendicant, go away into the forest and pursue and dwell upon only knowledge? So that's the question that Arjuna asks, a very important question, as I've mentioned many, many times. This is a question which is going to periodically repeat in many, many chapters till the very end. Even in the 18th chapter, there's a verse where Arjuna repeats the same question, rephrases it in a different manner. But uh, the third chapter definitely starts with this particular question that he asks. So Krishna says that it is not like whether this is better or that one is better. These are merely two nishtas or two pathways which take one to the goal. right? He says these are two nishtas meaning committed lifestyles. He says jnana yogena sankhyanam, karma yogena yoginam. For the people who are inclined towards a life of renunciation, he says sankhya yoga or to constantly concentrate only on knowledge and seeking knowledge is the path or the path of renunciation is for people who have that kind of a mental attitude and for most other people who are active, who have to act, karma yoga is the path. For all the other yogis who are aspiring to reach the goal, he says karma yoga is the other nishta or the other committed lifestyle that is available. And Krishna clearly says these are two pathways that I have spoken of in the past. And we saw how this could mean in the previous chapter or it could be Krishna making a reference to his timelessness itself. The path of jnana for those who have renounced, as I said, and for everybody else, the path of karma yoga, which means Krishna is going to speak about karma yoga to Arjuna because he is dissuading him from the path of renunciation for very good reasons, as some of them we saw last time. We will be seeing them again as we go through the third chapter too. 
In verse number 4 that we covered the last time, Krishna makes a very important point. He says, by abstaining from action, one does not reach the state of actionlessness. The Sanskrit word for that is naishkarmyam. By abstaining from action, you do not perform, you do not reach the state of naishkarmyam or actionlessness. And though the ultimate goal is to free oneself from attachment, just by sannyasa, which is represented by giving up all your attachments, all your relationships, I am not so-and-so son, I am not so-and-so's daughter, I am not bound by all of these relationships. Yes, we have to go beyond attachment and that is the final goal. But merely by debunking the relations that we have around us in the name of sannyasa does not take us to that ultimate goal. Right? So these are two very important points that Krishna makes. Merely by abstaining from action, you do not reach the state of actionlessness. Merely by giving up all your duties and responsibilities and becoming a sannyasa, you do not reach that ultimate state which is beyond all kinds of attachment. But still there is this question of which is better of the two paths, whether it is to give up and become a sannyasi or to pursue with karma in the form of karma yoga. So Krishna says in the fifth verse that it is impossible to be inactive. The gunas constantly, the attributes or the gunas constantly propel one to act. Right? In fact, he says, Karyate hi avasha. One is forced to act. One is not left alone. One is forced to act by the gunas. And we had an elaborate discussion on this. How he said, whether one chooses to renounce everything or whether one chooses to pursue an ambition or whether one chooses to act as a karma yogi. All of these choices are at the end of the day made by the same ego. And the whole idea of this process of the, the spiritual journey is to sublimate the ego. So as long as there is the ego, it is the ego that is making the choice and there cannot be a case of actionlessness in that true sense or naishkarmyam. Right? So Krishna says that it is impossible to be inactive. Each one is propelled to act and what propels one to act it is the nature and the gunas of that particular individual. In the next two verses that we discussed, I think uh, verse number 6 and 7, again Krishna makes another very very important and profound point where he says, the change should be inside out and not the other way around. Right? And that is the mistake that Arjuna is about to make. He probably has looked at many sannyasis and monks and he has taken a fancy to that idea that their life is so much more greater because they are pursuing knowledge one-pointedly. And he wanted to do the same thing. And I think that's a mistake that all of us tend to do. We look at a person who has attained a certain state in their spiritual journey and we try to do what that other person has done. I think we even discussed this when we were talking about the question that Arjuna raised about Sthita Pragna. How does he walk? How does he talk? How does he carry himself? How does he sit? The idea behind that is by imitating that person, to an extent, we can reach that state. It is, to a certain extent, a very, very limited extent, true. But there is a caveat there and there is a pitfall in this approach of trying to do things by imitating someone. And that is the problem of coming from outside to inside, right? You're trying to imitate someone's external attributes, thinking that that will give you the same internal achievement of that person. And that's what Krishna speaks about in the sixth verse. He says, 
one who controls the external limbs and sits idle but lets the mind roam will only be called a mithyachara or a hypocrite krishna hints that arjuna you will become like that if you refrain from action because if you ask what is better action or inaction i will do that you are eventually heading towards that thing you are trying to embrace someone's external attributes with the idea that that will give you the goal that will give you the ultimate merger or ultimate liberation that you are seeking right so krishna says a person like that will only be a mithyachara because he has controlled the body and the limbs yes he is sitting down yes he does not act we often say this we all have a certain amount of control over the body if swami comes and tells us you know sit here don't get up or many times swami would come and say this my student swami would come and tell us no no don't sit here you sit there sometimes swami would tell in the earlier years the students would never sit down for darshan they would always be standing as swami would come for darshan so if swami comes and says now all of you start standing all of these is easy to do because controlling the body is a little more easier than controlling the mind so given that a person might always take to this easy path of controlling the body but does not work enough on controlling the mind and we spoke of how arjuna might eventually land up like that because it is his disgust at what would happen if this war was to take place which is pushing him towards this attitude of sanyasa so being in the forest he might still be angry with the duryodhanas and his brothers he might still be angry with the injustice that was met to him and his brothers so he would only end up being a mithyachara or an hypocrite who has controlled the limbs but he has not controlled the mind the mind is still dwelling on power authority sensual objects and worldly achievements and, and such so krishna says don't try to achieve the state from outside to inside the internal mechanism has to be changed the signs or the inner workings of how you have to achieve the goal has to be understood and that is why the bhagavad gita is so very important krishna is going to speak about that how do you attain that state in the true sense not for becoming someone who will appear as a spiritual person to the world but to become someone who's truly spiritual right and in the last verse that we saw which was verse number 7 krishna contrasts the hypocrite that he spoke about with the karma yogi and he says a hypocrite controls the limbs but does not control the mind and then krishna says it is better to strive for the control of the mind and then use the karmendriyas or the limbs of action to perform karma yoga in an unattached manner and that's the seventh verse so he says instead of controlling your body and sitting idle and letting your mind go all over the place it is better if you still act if you use your karmendriyas to act but you act in a certain manner and you do a certain thing with your thinking and your mind and which is what krishna is going to talk about in the next few verses that we'll go through i think from the notes that i have i'll have time only for two verses because uh, krishna is going to speak about a very very important concept which needs to be sorted out before we go forward to the following three or four verses in the same chapter so that's why i think it's going to take a little bit of time to cover that but it's a very very interesting topic this is the crux of karma yoga and this is so practical this is so very easy to start practicing i'm not telling that it is so easy and because i'm sure people will be asking if it is so easy do you think are you following it no it is not that way 
among the many paths that are spoken about of this yoga and that yoga and kundalini and hatha or whatever i'm not well versed with all of that but this is the simplest this is the easiest which krishna speaks about and that is why the power of the bhagavad gita this is not a smriti this is a shruti the lord himself is saying so if he says that doing this you will achieve the goal that is the truth you don't need any better validation than that the lord who is going to grant the ultimate state is himself saying that if you do this you will achieve it and that is the promise that bhagavad gita presents in front of us and that is the glory of this particular karma yoga that krishna is going to speak about and we will see that everything else that he speaks about is like a prop that holds up this path of karma yoga in a sense i know it's too early to say that but i'm just giving you the build up because we will see the next two verses so very beautiful ones verse number 8 is what we will go through first as always i'll play it out in the voice of brother sham thankfully we have his wonderful rendition you saw what a disaster it is if i try to read out these shlokas it is best heard from him and i'm very very grateful that he's helped us with these verses so we we'll listen to the first verse in brother sham's voice i'll give you a brief translation of that and then we will discuss about some of the very very important concepts and words that krishna uses in that particular verse नियतम कुरु कर्मत्वम कर्मज्ञायोह्य कर्मणा शरीरयात्रापिचते न प्रसिद्धेद कर्मणा यू परफॉर्म द ऑब्लिगेटरी ड्यूटीज फॉर एक्शन इज सुपीरियर टू इनएक्शन एंड थ्रू इनएक्शन even the maintenance of your body will not be possible so that's verse number 8 of chapter 3 the most important word in the shloka according to me is this word niyatam which means mandatory krishna tells arjuna tvam you niyatam kuru do what must be done do what is a mandatory action for you So, what are these mandatory actions? An action that one has to perform. I think the whole debate revolves around this definition of what do you define as your mandatory action? What is my mandatory action? What is your mandatory action? What is the mandatory action of a teacher? What is the mandatory action of a mother? What is it that is mandatory for an individual? A lot of people end up defining niyatam or niyata karmas as the rituals that are mandated in the scriptures for instance a person who is born in the tradition of agnihotra is supposed to be doing a, a particular kind of ritual worship every day or someone is born in another lineage is supposed probably you know supposed to do a different kind of a worship we know that the vedas speak about a lot of these rituals and ritualistic approaches so a lot of people translate this word niyata or niyata karmas are as the rituals or karmas that are mandated for a person be it if he is a householder be it if he is a bachelor or be it if he is a, a widower or a widow each one of them have been given a series of rules and regulations to follow and these are often spoken of as niyata but in the gita vahini when swami is talking about this particular verse swami uses a term for niyata karmas or niyatas he says 
kartavya karmas. That's the exact phrase that he uses. He says kartavya karmas. And kartavyam is a word which Swami uses quite often, which means duties. So kartavya karmas are actions that are our duties. That's a very, very universal thing. It does not depend on our lineage. It does not depend on our nationality. It does not depend on which stage of life we are in. In the sense that we don't have to go in search of it in any scripture or any book. These are duties that we have to carry as we go through life. And I'm sure I've mentioned this definition of duties before. How do you define what a duty is? I think even in the course of the Bhagavad Gita series, we've spoken about this to a small extent. There are good actions and there are bad actions and these are easy to define. If with selfishness, I hurt someone, it's a bad action, it's a sinful act. If I do an act that helps someone, it is a good act, it's a punya karma. And Swami would often use the phrase, paropakaraya punyaya papaya parapidanam. To be of help to others is punya, to hurt or harm others is papa or sin. So to define sin and merit is very easy or to define good actions and bad actions is very easy. But duty is such a thing that one is bound to do. Going back to good actions and bad actions, when you say a good action, it's a meritorious action. If I'm going home on the way, I see a very poor and elderly person, I choose to give that person some money or I choose to go and buy some food and give it to that person. It's a meritorious act, right? So by doing that, I earn some merits. I earn some punyam. I'm just lost in my thoughts or I don't notice that person that will not doing that act will not accrue any sin on my part. But the duty is that, that when you don't do it, it becomes a sin. Inaction practiced inside duty, I hope I'm wording this right, when something is my duty and I choose inaction in the course of that, not doing my duty becomes or not doing that action becomes a sin, right? Let me try to give an example for a duty which probably would be simpler. For instance, the same example of me feeding a beggar. But if I were to have a very elderly parent at home, now my duty is to take care of this parent, be it a mother or a father or both mother and father. The elderly people who are dependent on me because I am the son who has to take care of them. Now feeding these people who are my mother and father to whom I am duty bound, becomes my duty and me not performing that act becomes a sin. Me not performing the act of giving some money to a beggar does not necessarily always become a sinful act. But when it is my duty, similarly when there is a mother who has to feed the child, when the mother does not perform the duty of feeding the child, inaction also becomes a sin. I hope uh, this is clear. It's a very, very important thing. And this is the crux of what Krishna is trying to explain to Arjuna. I'm a person, I make choices whether to act or not act. So when I choose to act, I have to choose acts that are meritorious. If I don't want to act, by not acting, I'm just not going to earn merit. But I can go on with life, right? But there are some acts that if I don't perform, it becomes sin. There are some acts which are mandatory to perform and those are what we refer to as duty. And why are those acts 
such that if I don't perform, it will become a sinful act. In a situation, if by not acting, I affect the circumstances adversely or affect the people involved in the circumstance adversely, my inaction also is counted as a sin. Right? That's what happens when a mother forgets to feed a child or when a son forgets to take care of his elderly parents. By inaction, I am adversely affecting the situation. And that is precisely what uh, Arjuna is also being told here. That you know, he is in a situation where he is supposed to fight this battle. And he is saying that I will not fight, so that way I will not get bad karmas. Krishna says, no, this is your duty. And if you don't act through your inaction, you will be sinning. Right In the second chapter, we have gone through these verses where Krishna says this. This is your duty. By not acting, you will be indulging in sin. Right, So that is the definition of duty and that is how duty is different from a regular meritorious activity. And that is why Swami uses the word kartavya karmas for niyatas. What are those mandatory actions that one has to do? Those are our kartavyams. What are my duties as a son? What are your duties as a wife? What are your duties as a father? What are your duties as a teacher? All of these become niyata karmas or mandatory actions. You all must have heard of this when we were in Swami's college, when we were in the hostel. Most of us will be given duties. You know, we are supposed to take up some kind of activities which are meant for the upkeep of the college and the hostel. And each one of us would take, somebody would take up gardening, somebody would take up some kind of maintenance work where they would fix tube lights or do some plumbing work in the hostel. In different activities, some of them would take up the activity of working in the kitchen. So these are all duties that we choose. We are allowed to choose based on our uh, aptitude and our liking what duties we would like to take up. So one of the duties I recall in our college days was that of cleaning the prayer hall. Right In the college we had this huge prayer hall and every morning our prayer session would happen in this foyer. And there were a set of boys who had this duty of cleaning this prayer hall. And I recall a very beautiful statement which the teacher in charge had once said when we were cleaning this prayer hall. We had to sweep and mop the whole place. And he had said, you know, see, this is such a duty that if you perform it every day, nobody will know that you are doing your work. But if you don't do it or if you don't do it properly, that day it will be known. And uh, this is actually a beautiful description of duty itself. What we refer to as niyata karma or duties are those that if we perform, nobody will notice. But if we fail to perform or if we choose inaction when we are supposed to act, those will show up, right? That's one more way of defining what are niyata karmas, which Krishna is saying, oh Arjuna, you have to do your niyata karmas, right? In simplest example is uh, we often see that in the town outside the ashram, you know, in Puttaparthi, very often I think once in a few months, the people who maintain cleanliness in the township of Puttaparthi the sweepers who do a phenomenal job, right? Sometimes if you go early in the morning or sometimes when you go very late in the night, you would find them coming and cleaning the whole road. But the best part is you will only notice their work on the days when they've gone on a strike. When you walk through the road, you will find piles of garbage all over the place. And then you will realize the value of those people who silently come when everybody is sleeping and come and clean the road, right? So that is what duty is. When you do it as a mother, when you do your duty for 20 years, 30 years, nobody will recognize it. The few days when the mother is out of town, 
when the house is all in a mess that is when we realize the role the importance of the mother's role in the house right so that is what typically duty is like by doing it most often it will be a thankless job but when you don't do it that is when it will be noticed so krishna says the niyata karmas are such actions and you are meant to do it by virtue of the circumstance you have placed in like arjuna's own role in the battle as i just explained that's why you know after saying that there are people who sit quietly but their mind is all over the place better than that is to do actions which means instead of having desires and not acting it is better to act to fulfill your desires of course krishna doesn't say this categorically at least at this point or in any of the verses that we've gone through now but i'm mentioning this as this is the normal way of acting right that's what we've been speaking about a father works with the desire say to provide a better future for his children a student works hard hoping to get good marks and clear his exams a sportsman trains very hard with the desire to win so this is normal and it is okay as long as you do it within the bounds of morality but this is what we refer to as a regular or a normal form of life raga and dvesha driven life but regulated by righteousness or dharma and i feel krishna doesn't explicitly mention this intermediary stage because i think arjuna is already there arjuna is already a very good person he does not do anything wrong and this is the normal life and this normal life is better than a life where a person has desires the mind is constantly contemplating on worldly objects worldly authority and success etc etc but the person chooses not to act saying if i act i will get bound to the consequences so let me sit idle right so better than being a hypocrite in that manner is krishna is saying that if you have raga and dvesha no problem go ahead act try to fulfill those desires but just do it within the bounds of dharma right that's the normal expected nature from a person and that's why swami would often says what are the human values satya dharma shanti prema and ahimsa that is the basic minimum you have to speak the truth you have to do righteous actions you have to not fight with others you should be loving so these are basic human actions right this is the bottom line of human life worse than that he says is this hypocritical life or the term very beautiful term that he uses mithyachara better than to be a mithyachara is to be a regular person and you know often times if you look at it sami would come and ask us especially when we have this situation where uh, we have completed our education and we want sami to guide us or we have finished one course and we want sami to tell us whether he wants us to do an mba or he wants us to do a, a phd the most ideal approach to this situation in life especially in the context of sami students and we should tell sami sami you tell me what you want me to do i am open and ready to do whatever sami wants me to do right so as a theory all of us would know that this is the right answer to give if sami comes and asks us what he wants us to do and this requires a little bit of mental training because you know that sami could come and tell you anything sami could come and tell you you know work in the hospital and sami could probably come and tell you that you know i'll send you to bangalore and you can work in the hostel there so when you say that sami i'm ready to do whatever you tell me to do mentally we should be absolutely neutral to all of the options available right but because just about out of peer pressure talk about peer pressure being 
little positive in some senses. This was out of peer pressure that some people would eventually tell Swami that Swami, whatever you say, I will do. But sometimes they will have a preference in their mind. So a lot of students would want to do research or would want to become teachers. But when Swami would come and ask them this, what do you want to do? They will just blurt out saying that Swami, whatever you tell me to do. And sometimes Swami would get a little upset with that purely because it is an expression of disharmony in thought, word and deed. You have a desire but you're not expressing it. And that's why the normal way is not bad in that sense, right? If you have a desire, if you have raga and dvesha, if you have an ambition, it is absolutely not wrong to pursue it with good, righteous actions, right? To have those desires and to pretend not to have them and pretend not to act or pursue them, thinking that that way people will think that I don't have those desires, Krishna says that is a worse state to be in, right? So that's why he is defining the state of a hypocrite so very beautifully in that. Now Arjuna is in that state of a good person, normal person. You know, He has ambitions, he's been pursuing them, but he's never overstepped the bounds of dharma, unlike the Kauravas, right? The Kauravas also had Raga and Dvesha, but in the pursuit of what they wanted and what they desired for, they did not hesitate to hurt others or they did not hesitate to take to the wrong path. Like how they do all kinds of wrong things during the game of dice and all other small, small things when they do, they manipulate, right? If I could put a hierarchy of how people are, the lowest is the Mithyachara probably, who are fooling the world and fooling themselves. A little worse than that or a little less worse than that are people like Kauravas who are pursuing their Raga and Dvesha but you know, end up sinning in the process. A little higher than that is probably the normal person who is represented by Arjuna, who has ambitions, who has likes and dislikes, but he is always pursuing it within the bounds of Dharma. So now Arjuna wants to do something different, if I could put it that way. He is put in a situation where for the first time he is not sure what is right. As long as right and wrong was black and white, Arjuna always chose the right and he was being a normal person. But when an opportunity or when a situation is presented in front of him where he is not sure what is right and wrong, when it has become blurred, he is scared to commit himself to action so he is in the verge of making the mistake of choosing inaction. So what is Krishna's role in this? What is Krishna trying to do? He's saying, okay Arjuna, being a normal person is not good enough and you want to improve. The improvement is from karma to karma yoga, not from karma to akarma. Right? That is what Krishna is trying to explain here. If you want to go ahead, if you want to become a better person, from being a person who purely did karma, driven by raga and dvesha, but nevertheless moderated by dharma. If you want to raise yourself, raise yourself to the state of a karma yogi. Don't try to go further down to become a mithyachara, right? So that is the essence of what Krishna is explaining here in the form of this karma yoga. So Krishna tells Arjuna, Tvam niyatam kuru, you do what must be done. Karma, action, Jayo is better, he akarmanaha, than inaction. So do what you're supposed to do. This is the normal state I spoke of. Tam niyatam kuru. Do what you're bound to do. Do what is your duty. So what you choose to do is a mix of what is your duty and what are your likes and dislikes. All of this together defines what action you do. And of course, the lines and the boundaries of morality always define 
what you should not do and how much you can push yourself but karma jayo hi akarmana action is certainly better than inaction so if you want to improve yourself don't think of inaction don't think of akarma think of karma yoga let us say that you give up the kartavya karmas or the duties that you have as i mentioned duties are that which when not performed can be counted as a sin but these sins may or may not affect us immediately for example swami would say if today you send your parents to an old age home without taking care of them tomorrow your son or your daughter will come and send you away to the old age home and you know it will come back to you right what goes around comes around but that consequence will take a few years to show up but there are some niyata karmas which will show up immediately what are they the actions that have to be performed for the upkeep of the body isn't it eating sleeping some form of activity to keep fit so even if you give up your duties towards others the effect and consequence of that probably may come immediately or might take some time to come back but it is not possible to give up these niyata karmas or duties towards your own body because it will show up quite immediately if you don't eat if you don't sleep if you don't brush if you don't have bath the consequence is going to be quite immediate of course you will be troubling the people around you also but you will be troubling yourself too that's why krishna says in the next line of the verse that we went through he says sharira yatra apicha even the upkeep of the body na prasiddhet would not be possible te akarmanah if you were to become one of inaction right so he says that niyata karmas towards your people around you people you whom you related to should not be given up but if you look at it from the niyata karmas that are towards your own body towards your own upkeep of your own body those also have to be performed so there is no way because this is an extension of what krishna told in the earlier verses he said inaction is not possible for a person because he says niyata karmas have to be done and if not any other niyata karmas the niyata karmas that are towards your body have to be done and it's a very very beautiful word he used sharira yatra right sharira yatra is defined or translated as upkeep of the body but if you look at that combination word sharira means body yatra means a journey right so it can be said to journey through life in this body you need karma you need to perform some karmas right that's a very beautiful sharira yatra or another way of looking at it is for the journey that this body goes through because as we said the body itself journeys through the phases of childhood and youth and adulthood and old age right so sharira yatra can be spoken of as both ways either the journey of life that we undertake in this sharira or the body or the journey the body undergoes in the course of life both of it is the same we can explain it as both ways so he says sharira yatra apicha even for the upkeep of the body na prasiddhet would not be possible te akarmanah if you were to become one of inaction something that uh, i think we had discussed last time too inaction is technically not possible as i said this is just an extension or a, a reiteration of what krishna had told that but if you look at it arjuna's fear is actually not baseless right the idea of karma being ominous is a reality because whatever is the action that one is going to do it is going to bind good actions bad actions you know discriminated actions and thoughtful actions and whatever it is 
small to large to sins to merits everything is going to have a consequence right maybe arjuna was as i said was not worried till everything was clear but now when he is not sure whether it is right or wrong he is all the more worried right and he is not sure how much it is going to bind him whether it's going to bind him only with infamy in this particular birth or is it going to become a sin which is going to haunt him from birth to birth right so the reason why he wants to not act is not because he is lazy not because he is an hypocrite it's because of this fear because karma binds and that is true his fear of karma is not illegitimate so to say and hence comes to this very simplistic conclusion that let me not act at all but krishna tells him how that is an absurd thing to do as we have seen that is what we saw in the past few verses and the verses that we covered earlier too in the next few verses krishna is going to speak about now that karma cannot be given up in what way karma binds or what karma binds and in what way if the karma is performed it does not bind in other words krishna is going to speak about what is the karma that binds is there a karma that does not bind if there is one can we take that karma analyze that and try to imbibe what makes that karma non binding and can we practice that in every other karma that we do right this is the most important analysis that krishna is going to do and i think uh, that is what we are going to dwell into for the next few minutes but before that we'll listen to verse number 9 where krishna speaks about that and i'll give you a general meaning after that and then we'll discuss with whatever time we have about this important topic that how do you perform karma in a manner that it does not bind yajnyarthat karmanon yatra lokoyam karma bandhanah tadartham karma kaunteya muk in the world people are fettered by action unless it is performed as a sacrifice therefore o arjuna let thy acts be done without attachment as sacrifice alone from this verse as i just mentioned krishna starts an important discourse on yagna or sacrifice what i translated as sacrifice the word that krishna uses is yagna in the next few verses krishna is going to speak about this right but in what context is he bringing it up he concurs with arjuna's fear that action binds he says ayam lokah karma bandhanah this entire world is bound by karma meaning no one is spared men women pandavas kauravas kings and paupers the entire world is bound to karma or the consequences of the karmas that are performed another way of probably putting this very statement is all actions done in this world in whatever context as a duty as a, a desire or as an aspirational act whatever it is whatever karma is done in this world binds a person but he goes on to say yagnyarthat karmanah anyatra except for yagnyarthat karmanah actions that are performed for a yagna so he says all actions whoever is performing it 
whatever context they're performing it, whether it's duty or whatever, inspired by whatever every karma binds. But he says, Yagnyarthat karmanaha anyatra, except for actions that are performed for the sake of a yagna. Now, this is a very, very big declaration by Krishna. He says, All actions bind except for yagnas. I'm sure all our listeners know what is a yagna. In case anyone doesn't know, if any of our Western audience do not relate to the word yagna, yagna is a ritualistic fire sacrifice that is practiced in India that was much, much more prevalent in the past. Now it's, it's a tradition which is dying, but nevertheless, it's a constant tradition which still happens. And those of you who are regular visitors to Prashantanilium will know that we have a yagna every dashara, which is called Veda Purusha Saptaha Jnana Yagna. We've had other yagnas like the Atirudra Mahayagna. We've had other homams, which are also a different form of yagnas. So yagna is typically a form of ritualistic worship, which is spoken about extensively in the Vedas. There are a lot of rules and regulations how a yagna should be done and how a yagna kunda should be formed, how a yagna shala should be built. The people who are participating in the yagna, what they should do and what are the offerings that should be made. It's a very elaborate process. So technically, a yagna is a ritualistic fire sacrifice. As we've seen in the second chapter, Krishna spoke about the ritualistic approach to the Vedas. And we had discussed at that point why it was a very important uh, discussion in the context of the Dwapra Yuga because spirituality was meandering towards these meaningless ritualistic actions and Krishna had to put that in context, right? So is this reference at this particular point and the verses that are going to follow merely references to the ritualistic fire sacrifice that were only relevant for that age? I think even in India, this as I said is a practice that is not as prevalent now as it was in the times of Arjuna. So is it that this is not relevant for us or is it that we also should start performing these fire sacrifices because Krishna has declared that actions that are meant for a yajna alone do not bind? Or is there any other way of looking at the statement that Krishna is making yajnyarthartha karmanaha actions performed for the sake of a yajna? It's very important to answer this question especially at this point because the next few verses Krishna speaks even more about these yajnas and he is doing so in the middle of a discourse on karma yoga, right? That should not be forgotten. So there is a symbolism in these yajnas that represent, I feel, the central idea of what karma yoga is all about. So it is important to look at this word yajna or this concept of yajna beyond merely just that ritualistic practice of sitting in front of the fire and offering oblations to it as a form of worship. There's something more. There is a symbolism behind the yajna which has to be understood because that symbolism is common with a karma yoga or a karma yogi performing his actions. For this particular discussion, I'm going to take three explanations that Swami has given. He has himself given in different discourses. As we will see that Though they are different explanations that Swami has given in different places, they all concur in a certain way or they are all related in a certain way. So these three explanations, I'm sure there are many, many ways of looking at uh, many other ways too. But we will, for now, stick to these three explanations that Swami gives about what is a yajna. 
Firstly, Swami makes a reference to a statement from the Vedas that says, Yagnyo Vai Vishnuhu, which means Yagnya is God, Yagnya is Vishnu, which means wherever there is a reference to Yagnya or doing something for the purpose of a Yagnya, we can almost certainly without any worry replace it by saying do it for God or do it as an offering to God. So when Krishna says Yagnyarthat Karmanaha Anyatra Lokaha Hayam Karma Bandhanaha we can say all actions bind except those that are done for God or done as an offering to God. Why? Because the Vedas declare Yagnyo Vai Vishnuhu Yagnya is Vishnu, Vishnu is Yagnya, Yagnya is God. So in any of the scriptures or any of the verses in the Bhagavad Gita, wherever Krishna talks about Yagnya or wherever anybody talks about Yagnya, you know, just like we do in Word document, find and replace, command F or Windows F, you find and wherever it says Yagnya, you replace it with God and then you're good to go. Yes, that is one way of looking at it and I think you will all agree with me that it does make sense too. Right? Of course, as I said, this is an explanation that Swami himself has given. But Krishna could have said it directly. He could have said that except for actions that are done for God. Why should he say Yagna? Why should he use the word Yagna instead of saying God? Or Earlier also we have found verses where he says those who do it for God. Right? Why does he use the word Yagna and why is he going to speak about Yagna so much? It can only mean that the concept of Yagna is going to give us a clue as to what it means to do actions as an offering to God. It is not wrong to say that Yagnyarthat means for God, but the word Yagnya stands for something which is going to explain to us what it means to do for God or do something as an offering to God. So let us go to the other two explanations that Swami gives. The word Yagnya, if it has to be translated into English, we generally use the word sacrifice. Right? Yagna can be, instead of telling it as the ritualistic fire sacrifice, we can just say sacrifice. So, Yagna is translated as sacrifice. And that's what Swami says. Yagna is nothing but a form of sacrifice. So, essentially, the operational word is sacrifice. In one of Swami's uh, discourses during the 1984 series where he spoke about Bhagavad Gita, he explains this concept of sacrifice very, very simply and very beautifully. Swami says, what is a sacrifice? Even if you wish to buy a small object, you have to let go of some money, isn't it? To earn money, you sacrifice your health. You sacrifice so many petty things to attain a larger ambition. So Swami goes on to say that something has to be sacrificed to achieve something. The only difference is a wise person sacrifices something of lesser importance to gain something which is more valuable. But a misguided person or a senseless person sacrifices something of greater value to achieve something which is much, much more petty in nature. As Swami would say, if wealth is lost, nothing is lost. You can always earn it back. But if health is lost, something is lost. So that being the case, those that sacrifice health merely for the sake of earning wealth can be defined to be silly, right? Isn't that? Because isn't that so? You are giving up something which is more valuable to earn something which is of a less value. Similarly, Swami goes on to say, you know, if character is lost, everything is lost. If health is lost, something is lost. But if character is lost, everything is lost. And then 
we can understand how much more silly it is if somebody lets go of character in trying to pursue wealth so swami goes on to say in that same discourse we must be wise enough to sacrifice our flaws our bad qualities to gain noble qualities right so swami says that is what is sacrifice that is what is yagna so when we talk of a yagna of of a sacrifice that is meant to be a worship or an offering to god which is a ritual sacrifice which is dedicated to god swami says that sacrifice or yagna is giving up everything that is worldly in pursuit of the spiritual or the ultimate goal so when krishna says actions that are performed as part of yagna it means any act that is performed not with worldly gains in mind but the highest desire in mind and that is exactly what he had told in the second chapter isn't it that's what we had gone through the regular simpleton will do actions merely for fulfilling his or her desires but a wise karma yogi will continue to act but will act for the highest goal that is what it is yagnyarthat karmanah do actions for yagna which means give up worldly petty things in pursuit of the higher spiritual goals that is the second explanation that swami gives about what is a yagna or a sacrifice now let us come to the third understanding or third explanation that swami gives which is also very very important as we go through the gita i think we will be reiterating some of these explanations because as i said the next few verses krishna is going to speak more about yagna how the concept of yagna is fundamental to creation and all of that right so these will be repeated and reiterated and we will see how this is connected to karma yoga right and how this is going to hint at a practical way of living a spiritual life now all said and done yagna is a ritual and that cannot be denied right because as i said enormous amounts of literature is available in the vedas as you know the vedas are distinctly separated into three categories the samhitas the brahmanas and the aranyakas the samhitas are the verses the brahmanas invariably is that chunk where it speaks about how rituals have to be performed so there is voluminous content of how yagnas have to be performed so we cannot deny the fact a yagna is a fire ritual right we should not take that meaning completely out of it what is a ritual let's start from there when we say that yagna is a fire ritual what is a ritual in a basic sense a ritual always has i think Uh, a dual value one is the act itself has some form of benefit to the people who are performing it and the people who are all around if you look at the yagna the process of yagna or a fire sacrifice itself some you would often say that you know this process of offering oblations into the fire of pouring ghee and pouring all of these uh, objects into the fire some you would say that the smoke which arises from this fire is very very pure smoke and we've seen it right when a homam is done the smoke which comes out is pure white and so you would say this goes and gets involved in the process of cloud formation the water that comes from this cloud in the form of rain is very very good water the nourishment that it gives to the crops is very good and the nutrition that we derive from eating such crops is so much more so this is the benefit of the act itself so ritual always has a dual role one of it is the act itself will have some form of benefit and that's how the ancients have processed and given to us all forms of rituals and we we always see this 
one of the most classic uh, examples of a ritual having a hidden benefit is that of an act which we often used to do as children in front of especially a ganesha temple where we would hold our ears with our uh, fingers and we would sit and get up we would do a certain kind of squats and now that simple act of doing that ritual form of worship in front of lord ganesha is being marketed as i think a super brain yoga or something like that because they found that just doing that act maybe 10 or 20 of those squats holding your you know left ear lobe with your right hand and your right ear lobe with your left hand right they say that it enhances memory power so much so it's a ritual the ritual act itself has some benefit so that is one part of what it is the other benefit of a ritual is that there is a certain symbolism that is conveyed through that particular ritual so when we look at the yagna the yagna is a symbol of what it is to offer our actions to god the yagna itself has its benefits but what does it symbolize it means what it is to offer our actions to god or do something as an offering to god first and foremost a yagna is a fire sacrifice the fire is the most important component of that sacrifice you are expected to drop your offerings into that fire why fire why not an empty pit or why not an altar and you just go and place your offerings there why do we have this symbolism of a fire and we dropping things into that or we could even have a trough of water and we could drop things into that what is dropped into a fire is irretrievable you cannot pull out what you have already put into fire and i think that is the most important symbolism of a fire ritual that when you offer something to god you do not expect anything in return you have offered it and the offering is over i am offering this to you not with the idea that i will receive something in return my offering gets completed when i put it into the fire the offering is finished i cannot retrieve what i have already offered in front of you unlike the other prasadams that we place in front of the altar you know we make the prasadam to our taste because we know that at the end of the day the prasadam is going to come to my plate but a fire sacrifice or a yagna is not like that what i put into the fire is irretrievable similarly when i say that i am doing something as an offering to god which means swami i have offered my actions to you i am not looking for the consequences of this action because what is offered in the fire is irretrievable it has been offered and the story ends there right but there will be consequences right it does not mean that karma will not have consequences if you think that you're doing it as a yagna for every act small or big there will be consequences but what do we do normally we desire a particular result and hope that the consequence of our act will be the result that we seek right every act has a consequence but when we want to achieve something we are only hoping that the consequence of that act will match with the result that i'm seeking and we do whatever there is within our power to attain that so when we do the right thing there will be the consequence and the results that we are seeking but what we are effectively doing when we are doing it as a sacrifice as a yagna when we talk of a yagna or the symbolism of a yagna we bring a barrier or a point between what we do and the results of what our actions are what i do will definitely have results but now they are no more the results of my actions in my eyes 
they become prasadam. So I act, there is a consequence, but when I bring this concept or the symbolism of yajna in between, my acts become offerings, the consequences become the prasadam that I receive from God. And this is something which I'm sure I would have spoken of in other programs too, or you would have heard from Professor Venkatraman, he's very, very fond of this concept because it's a very, very beautiful explanation. What I do becomes naivedyam, the results or consequences of what I have done become prasadam. So I effectively break action and reaction, right? And this is what Karma Yoga is all about, that you do it without the consequences in mind. The consequences will come, but whatever comes becomes prasadam. You only look at what I am supposed to do. You do not get influenced in the stage of action by the consequences because consequences have nothing to do with it. Consequences become prasadam. When what I do has to be an offering, that again is going to be coming later. If something I have to do has to be done as an offering, what are the qualities which are required for that act that will come to later? But at this point, when we talk of yajna, we are effectively bringing in between what I do and what I receive. I am breaking that cycle by saying that I am offering to God. Right? Similarly, my actions are no more my efforts driven by Raga and Dvesha, but they are my offerings to God or what we refer to as Naivedyam. And that is what Swami would often say, that make your work as your worship. Right? Work is worship is something which Swami often says. So when we repeatedly keep saying there should be no Raga and Dvesha, it does not mean that we should absolutely have no desires or wishes at all. If any of us were in that state, we don't need the Bhagavad Gita. Right? We are already there. We don't need this discourse at all. But given that we have likes and dislikes, we have specific needs and ambitions. How do we go about raising ourselves from the state of doing karma to performing karma yoga? What we do should be defined by our likes and dislikes, first of all, and by our duties or near the karmas. Next, they must be regulated by morality. Right? These are the things which define it. Then the desire, aspiration and the appropriate actions performed must be offered as a sacrifice to God, craving only for the higher goals of life. Then there will be results, no doubt, but we are not going to be bound by those results in the sense that those results are not going to affect us in any way. We may become rich in the process, we may become successful and famous in the process, but whatever comes is not a result of my action, but is a result of my Swami's grace on me. This is Swami's prasadam to me, right? These are concepts I think, I think we'll have to be going into very in-depth understanding as we go through the third chapter. But it is this internal yajna that Krishna is referring to when he says yajna arthat karmanaha. In fact, Swami had said during one of the discourses, Dashara discourses in 1981, I think I'll just quickly quote that because what Swami says is very beautiful. He says, and I quote, Really speaking, the heart is the ceremonial altar. The body is the fireplace or the homakunda. The hair is the holy grass or dharba. Vicious are the fuel sticks with which the fire is fed. Desire is the ghee that is poured into the fire to make it burst into flame. Anger is the sacrificial animal. The fire is the tapas we accomplish. People sometimes 
interpret tapas as ascetic practices like standing on one leg or on the head no no tapas is not physical contortion it is the complete and correct coordination of thought word and deed when this is achieved the splendor of fire will manifest end of quote so swami says in as many words that every act of ours must become a yagna and the aspiration that is guiding that act the raga and dvesha that is guiding that act also become part of the offering swami says your desire is the ghee that you pour into the fire right so it is not that we should not have those desires at all fine we have likes and dislikes and that defines what actions we do but along with those likes and dislikes and the actions that are performed are offered into this homakunda that we are referring to and swami goes on to say in that particular discourse itself about the five yagnas i think i've spoken about this even in a answering booth program right he says pitru yagna is where all of the normal actions that we do in the course of life become a form of yagna pitru yagna is when you take care of your parents atithi yagna is when you serve the guests who come home deva yagna is when you perform acts that will raise your own consciousness there is something swami refers to as rishi yagna which you do means by which you spread good vibrations around be it nagar sankirtan or bhajans or when you speak lovingly to others so swami says all of the regular good actions that we perform in a day start becoming an yagna when we bring the symbolism of yagna so all of this will become that yagna that krishna is referring to but it is done in the manner that we just discussed till this point and sadly like all rituals the act of performing a yagna has also lost its symbolism and it's slowly becoming a very dry practice and the practice also is fading away but nevertheless if we understand the concept and symbolism i think we don't have to necessarily do that fire sacrifice i'm sure there are some people who are well versed at that and we'll hope that they carry forward the tradition it does not mean that all of us have to start doing yagnas but the symbolism of yagna is universal and that we have to take into our life so starting from this point krishna is going to talk about yagna and importance of yagna and i think that's why i felt it was important to understand what is this yagna and we will be repeating some of these things please put up with me if i'm going to repeat a lot of these concepts again and again just to reiterate what krishna is saying later but for now krishna shows arjuna actions certainly bind but actions done as yagna alone don't bind yagna thart karmanah anyatra lokah ayam karma bandhanah and then he exhorts arjuna by saying kaunteya o son of kunti tadartham for the sake of that or for as yagna mukta sangah being free from attachment karma samacharah perform actions and that's how krishna concludes verse number 9 and i think we better wind up at this point so dear listeners we'll continue with this third chapter and it gives us a hint of how rich what krishna is saying is and it is practically applicable to everyday life and i think that is where it is the proof of the pudding is in eating it as they say the proof of whatever we are studying in the bhagavad gita is we hitting the road running we practicing it as students as wives as mothers as employers or employees we trying to practice all of this in our daily life do our actions nothing wrong in having ambitions and aspirations but do actions with your aspirations and ambitions but offer it as you putting it in the fire in the homakunda 
and saying that Swami, I have done what I have to do. It is your offering. Now whatever comes, less or more, what I asked for, what I aspired for, or more than that, whatever it is, whatever comes, becomes your prasadam and what is prasadam is always acceptable. With that, dear listeners, we will conclude and I most humbly offer this entire effort at Swami's Lotus Feet. I'll meet you all again next week for the continuation of this triune pilgrimage of the Gita series. Till then, take care. Sairam.